Welcome to Dwight and Shining Armor, The Sunken Kingdom, the behind-the-scenes podcast about everything Dwight, quarantine edition. I'm Josh Breslow, and I play Yokopo. Today we're talking about Season 3, Episode 3, Fancy Pants, written by David Drew Gallagher, directed by A.L. Gordon, guest-starring Bonita Frederici. As always, we have a blanket spoiler alert, so if you haven't watched Season 3, Episode 3 yet, Stop whatever you're doing. You can prepare your father figure's funeral garb later and watch Fancy Pants either on BYU TV or at BYUtv.com slash Dwight. And a little extra word. We usually record the podcast in the wonderful podcast booth at the Comedy Store in West Hollywood. However, due to the coronavirus quarantine, we are recording this and future episodes from our respective homes via Skype. We very much appreciate your understanding regarding the audio quality and we'll be back to our usual sound as soon as we're able. Now, a quick recap. Baldrick and Greta are finally getting around to unpacking what with Tovenars and Vargers and water dragons and witches and all manner of things about they haven't had the time before now. And Dwight, of course, is helping out when he happens upon a very fancy pair of pants. The pants beclothe themselves upon Dwight, potentially made upward, and take off running. When they are stopped, they jump off Dwight and onto the nearest person, Greta, Baldrick, even Nana, in order to continue their journey to what all assume is a gruesome death at the hands of Ludacriso, where the wearer, probably Dwight, will be made into pudding. Now that everyone's been brought up to date, let's get to our guests. Back with us are the creators and showrunners of Dwight and Shining Armor, Brian J. Adams and Leanne H. Adams. Hey, guys. Hello. Hey, Josh. I, I love your recaps. We need to like put those like up on the cable, you know, in the info section. <laughs> <laughs> Such a great recap. Thank you. And for the first time this season, you know him as the magician so handsome he had to grow a giant beard just to level the playing field, Baldrick, a.k.a. Joel McCrary. Hey, Joel. Hello, hello. How is everybody doing? Now, you said that we're not at the uh, comedy store? No, this is not the comedy store, Joel. That's your house. Oh. (laughs) It's full of comedians, though. (laughs) (laughs) Let's get into it. Brian, Leanne, did a Fitbit inspire the plot of this episode, the fantasy that to get all your steps, a pair of pants could do all the work for you? So I, this <laughs> this says one of the things that I'm a little OCD about. I have a step counter, and I'm always trying to get my 10,000 steps, way more than I should. Uh, it, and, and so I, I'm sure that that, that helped, uh, helped in, inspire that. Uh, but I, I remember weirdly, uh, I was at Leanne's mom's house uh, several years ago. Uh, and I was sitting there eating breakfast at, at the table and Leanne's mom walked by and she was wearing this kind of funny pair of pants. <laughs> and I don't know, the, the title I think is what we started with. I'm like, wow, those are some fancy pants. Uh, and Leanne and I started talking about it from there. But that that was at least for me where, uh, where this came from. Well, the fancy pants is just really fun to say. Uh, also, we we're now into uh, into season three, and um, the joy of our story is that all these different characters, uh, these different villains, if you will, keep coming out of the woods, out of the woodwork uh, to um, cause problems for our heroes. And we thought, well, all right, what if we had an episode that wasn't a conventional villain played by an actor? What if it was a pair of pants <laughs> and then and it just seemed like a really fun uh, uh variation on our well 
worn theme by by this point. We've we've seen the villains come out of the woods, and now we wanted to see a very different kind of villain come out come out of the woods, and then also play with the idea that Greta and Joel and Hexala even are so convinced that this that these pants must be evil. Uh, and Dwight is not sure. Like he's gonna, he's gonna suspend judgment, and then at the end, it ends up being the cutest story you've ever seen. So uh, we had a lot of fun, but it did start with just like, what if, what if, what if the villain wasn't a person? What if it was some other kind of a, of a, not even a creature, but some other kind of sentient being? And if it could only be a pair of fancy pants, <laughs> all of our dreams would come true. It's all started with a, a thought that okay. These pants want to go that way. That was the whole story. That's how we pitched it to that was David the original Gallagher. Pitch. Yeah. <laughs> David, give give us what you got on this. These pants want to go that way, and that was it. The whole story came from there. I love that. Tell me about the design of the fancy pants. Why jester pants? Well, uh, medieval fashion was could be pretty garish by today's standards, but jesters specifically wore really outlandish clothing to look silly even at the time. So the the fancy pants needed to be a, a really different looking, really wild looking, and it just made sense that they would be jester pants because jesters wore pants like that. If you look at at um, paintings uh, of the medieval period, or you look at recreations of medieval wardrobe, the jester pants can, they can get outrageous. And we actually, you know, forbade our wardrobe folks from getting too obsessed with like cod pieces and things because boy, can it go, <laughs> it can go wild. So we said, we're having none of that. We're having seams and we're having none of that. But in every other way, we need these pants to just be crazy. And then we ended up, it was probably three straight weeks of the wardrobe department sewing fancy pants. They made 20 pairs of them because every actor has to have them uh, custom made to their body and has to have multiples in case they you know, roll in the dirt, which almost all of them did. So uh, we had to have layers and, and layers the, and layers. And, the, and, each stunt per, and, the, and each stunt performer also had to have several pairs with backup. So, yeah, it was a, it was a little sweatshop of fancy pants mm -hmm. uh, production in there. I didn't even think about that. Of course, they have to fit. See, the magic works on me. Of course, it's the same <laughs> pair of pants that just jumps from Brad at a ball drink. No, no, you need a million pairs. Wow, didn't even think about it. I was very happy that they didn't try to squeeze me into the same pants that they put on uh, Caitlin. I really appreciate that. <laughs> <laughs> that, um, that would have been so, a comedy in and of itself. <laughs> I, I feel like I've asked you this question for other episodes, but I have to ask again. What was it like seeing Sloan do the physical comedy when he first put on the fancy pants? Well, yeah, it, it was quite entertaining because, you know, Sloan, he, he thinks everything through, much like Dwight. He overthinks, you know, everything. And so I would be amused watching him. Uh, figuring out the physicality and being over to the side. We, we were sitting, waiting between scenes, and he would be doing like a little hop jump and then a run away. And he'd go, no, 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 no. He'd do it again a different way. No, no. Hop in it. Oh, okay, that's good. Okay, maybe like that. Yeah, and it's all to himself, just like a crazy person in the corner. 
but also, uh, you know, such a professional, such a pro that, you know, he need, knew he needed to get it. Uh, but you'd see him doing that in the tapes too, when it'd be like a take and he'd start to do it. No, 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 no. Back up and do it again until he got it the way he wanted. Um, so he knew what he wanted, uh, I think, and, and in his mind, but also he was trying to match one another with, cause there were, there was a, a certain hop. Uh, and different things that that everybody did in the pants. It was very entertaining watching him figure that out. It's it's great. I mean, now that you say it, I hadn't thought about this either. That Sloan and everybody, but Sloan, since he's the first to put on the fancy pants, was actually playing two characters at that point. You know, he had to consider what the pants wanted and what Dwight wanted, and play both actions at the same time. And that is the beauty. We've talked in previous episodes for Wishy Washy Part One when you had to slap yourself and the disconnect of it being in the eyes and watching yourself do these things. And I feel like this was an even more extreme version of that with him running, you know, the bottom half of his body running and the top half wanting to go another way. But of course you all had to play two characters at the same time when you had the pants on. True. That um, with that, you, you had to kind of let the pants lead and then your body go after. That was a big fear that Leanne and I had because on the page, we felt like it came across and when we were pitching it to each other, it sounds like, yeah, this is going to be great. But this, this more than any other episode to this point could have been a total disaster. I mean, if if the audience doesn't buy the fact that these pants are actually controlling the the actors' bodies, the whole thing's a, just you have to throw the episode away. I mean, it could have been really embarrassing and really bad. And when we first when we saw the first uh, you know director's cut of this episode, we were laughing out of such relief that it worked. And and that's a credit to you guys because putting it on the page is one thing, but to actually bring those pants to life and, and like you were just saying. Uh, play two characters at once, the, your character and the pants, and and show that uh, disconnect there is really difficult. And the entire episode would have been ha- thrown in the trash if that didn't work. But it, I think it does come across very well and is super funny. It does. And I got to say, just as somebody who had no context of what the episode was or was going to be, I got to watch it cold. And it was like, it reminded me of when I was watching like Make Them Laugh for the first time as a kid from singing in the rain. Like I was doubled over laughing, watching people flail their arms and run in the wrong direction. It just, that is my sweet spot of humor. Like that's, you could play that on loop for me and I will laugh forever. So I loved it. You guys are so good. Um, let's talk about Dwight jumping the fence. Was that wire work? That was wire work. And, and actually that was uh, a stunt performer as well. We, we obviously, Sloan was running uh, on a practical location. And then as he, he jumps, uh, we actually shot that just outside our stages. They set up a huge, you know, 30 by 30. Uh, normally it's a green screen, but since the pants were green, uh, it was a blue screen. Uh, so, and, and it's really fun to watch the stunt performers work because the, the stunt performer who's playing Dwight is on on a rig here, and then two of two other the stunt coordinator and another stunty are up on a ladder holding a a rope, and they jump off the ladder, which flings the you know the Dwight character up in the air and then across the the huge you know the blue screen in this case, and makes it look like he's flying, and it's 
it's it's really quite incredible to watch and obviously you know to coordinate and then once we have that then you know the visual effects team has to uh, to to match that to you know composite that with uh, a background that we shot uh, in the location so it's 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 pretty fun to see it all come together speaking of stunt work how did Dwight crossing the road work cuz car stuff that scares me and i i've never been on set for a stunt like that how how does that come together yeah, that one that one scared uh, scared Sloan too. <laughs> it's actually um, very very safe. Uh, no car that you see in that scene was uh, an accidental car. They were all uh, our cars driven by stunt drivers who were all choreographed from our stunt coordinator who was calling every single movement that they made. So uh, and the road was blocked off by police on both sides. So there was no chance of a driver accidentally making their way onto that road and and hitting Sloan. Uh, And it was choreographed with Sloan. So he he his job was to run across the street and the cars were to come um, close enough to him that the camera perceived them as being very close, uh, and then, uh, stop. So it, but I was there watching all of this and even knowing that, even though I was part of the conversations with the stunt, uh, group, like uh, organizing all of it, I, I had to look away. It looks so, so real that those cars are just going to plow right through Sloan. And he also, he he was understandably nervous about doing this because we are trained from the time we're two not to run out in front of cars on the street. And so as as he was psyching himself up for this and, and it, it, it was nerve wracking for him as well to just run across that street without stopping for the cars, it shows the really high level of trust and confidence that we all place in our stunt crew, um, that they were on it. And, and it went perfectly. There was not a single mishap there. Um, and really not even an opportunity for a mishap. Uh, it is so much safer, um, than it appears to be because the people are so professional that are driving those cars. That's incredible. It blows my mind. Um, and I'd love some time to talk to Banked about what kind of lens he uses to flatten mm-hmm. it to bring them mm-hmm. closer. It's so cool. Um, and speaking of lenses, actually, um, this is a question for any of the three of you who might remember. When Sloan is running around the pole uh, getting sick, did Banked attach a camera to him for that shot? I I remember, and I, <laughs> this is a sore subject for Banked. So if he's listening to this, sorry again. <laughs> We actually used a GoPro camera uh, that we attached uh, to Sloan for those you know, dizzying spinning shots. Banked, who is a consummate professional and an artist, was not in favor of replacing our $2 million camera package with you know, a $300 GoPro. Uh, but it was sort of a necessity. It's a totally – it's a much bigger deal to try and attach the normal – you know, camera package or, or get that shot in other ways. Uh, so for, you know, budget and scheduling purposes, we, we use the, uh, the GoPro and, and I know bank is still not happy with it. He, he mentions it to me frequently. <laughs> I'll bring it up the next time I see him. Just casually. You should. Absolutely. <laughs> um, Joel, I've asked a similar question of you before. Um, but this episode is a little different since the entire thing is physicality. Um, in an episode like this where your physicality comes into play virtually the entire time, do you prep the physicality in the same way you take the time to learn your lines or do you just show up that day and see where 
those legs will take you. You know, it really uh, varies, and it depends on uh, how big a stunt is, that type of thing. It, for, for something that's going to be really coordinated and, and or dangerous or uh, complicated or a lot to figure out, you know, sometimes you have the luxury of a day or two beforehand getting together the stunt coordinator, trying some stuff out and trying, you know, to, to figure it out. And then sometimes it's like going, okay, this is a lot of physical activity, but there's not really anything. We can't go to the location beforehand. So, you know, and this was a combination of this and it was mostly kind of show up and figure it out. You know, I, I know uh, reading the script and for, I don't remember what the reason was, but I got this script later and everybody else had read it and everybody kept coming to me saying, have you read fancy pants yet? And I was like, no, why? And they're like, Oh, <laughs> we kept it from you because we didn't want you to run away scared. <laughs> no, not yet. Not yet. <laughs> yeah. Uh, that was probably very smart, very wise because reading it, it was like, how are we going to do this? Um, but, also, uh, you know, I knew the team that we had together. We had Aol as director, who I trust uh, completely. And, and because I know he's so good with this type of comedy, any kind of comedy, but, but this type of comedy in particular, I know he's going to, what he asked me to do, it's going to be worth doing when I see it on the screen. Uh, and because I have a trust with him for that, I'm like willing, okay, let me push a little bit further. Let me see what I can do. But also, um, the other thing that was, was great about working with him on this type of thing, he knows what he needs. And so he doesn't push you to do extra. Well, let's get this to just in case, just in case, just in case it's kind of like, let me get what I need. And then maybe a couple of extra little shots here and there, but I'm not going to push you beyond. And so there's a trust with that. Um, and I know what he's getting is going to be funny. And so it's worth it to kind of go go through this. Uh, but really, except for just a very few shots, there wasn't anything that was overly challenging um, that was beyond. I think uh, Brian and knew from uh, lessons one through four where the line was, where they could push me <laughs> physically. Uh, and that was the line. And uh We've never, I don't, I don't think since that episode, since lessons one through four, where I'm possessed by the fairy, we've, uh, it, nothing has come up to, to that. And also they limited the time that Baldrick was in those pants and I appreciate it very, very much. Uh, and it was very wise for everybody's sanity. Um, <laughs> so thank you for that. Uh, <laughs> and, um, I imagine when you ran through the tray of pies, that was your stunt double, correct? Uh, it was a combo. I'm trying to remember exactly how that went. Yeah. Into the pies was the stunt double. And then they picked me up on the ground, kind of hitting the ground and the pies all around. Um, and then, oh, that's right. And then we did the running. I was on the back of a golf cart, uh, running, going crazy, telling people to go and then bam, the stunt guy runs into the pies and then they cut to me falling on the ground. So, yeah. uh, it's really amazing, you know, how they're able to cut that stuff together and you never even know, you know, it's, you know, thank goodness for our stunt guys. And we had, uh, I believe that was Josh who did uh, the majority of my stunts for uh, season three. And uh, so a big shout out to Josh, uh, not only for that stunt, but for the whole season. So Brian and Leanne, when you're writing an episode where all the dialogue is so much affected by the never ending movement of the characters, physical comedy, 
does the action or the dialogue come first for you? In, in this one, it was important that the action come first. We had to really plan out where the pants were going to go. Um, it was such an ambitious episode that we had to have a really clear map of the locations that we were going to be shooting in to make sure that we could do it, that we could afford it. So we needed to know exactly how much, how many scenes we were going to be outside on a street and what, which street, and then is it possible to have the next street be just around the corner, (laughs) you know, so that we can kind of make it seem like they're running further than they, than our crew really would have to run. Um, And so we really had to have a very clear idea. And that's why we have a few stopping points along the way. We, we let Dwight get attached to that pole to play a whole scene there running around the pole to give it still a sense that we're in motion fighting the pants but we get to just stop for a minute set up our cameras and do a scene that's why we go to uh hexala's salon for that for that rather lengthy scene where they come up with their theory about what's going on with the the pants um we needed to lock to cage the pants for a while and let them just be bouncing off the walls um, so that we could shoot the scene, in, in fact. And, and so we were really specific about our locations um, just to be sure that we could actually execute it. And then once we had picked like, like where uh, the different scenes were going to travel, then we designed the dialogue to sort of support and react to what's happening uh, in this scene. Again, here, going back to a previous conversation we've had on an earlier podcast, in this episode... This episode has a very clear protagonist, and it's the pants. Um, and everybody else is an antagonist to the pants. Um, and we don't have any idea what they want. We don't have any idea why they want it. But it's maybe the strongest, most driving protagonist we've seen yet. <laughs> yeah. um, so it's just sort of fun to watch. Like, will the pants get to what they finally want to get to? Well, yeah. And, and jumping off what Leanne was talking about with locations, we... We have pretty strict limitations, you know, because we have, uh, you know, a finite budget. And we were so excited about this idea of of having the pants running crazy all over Woodside. But we we don't it's I guess for people who don't know, listening at home, it's a lot more expensive uh, to shoot out in the world, as we say. Uh, so when we're off our established sets, we're off our uh, you know, studio lot where we work, if we're at the mall or we're at the park, that's a lot more expensive because we have to have uh, a bunch of Teamsters who can drive all the trucks and we move all of this gear. It's like a traveling circus from the base camp, uh, of our, our normal base camp at the studio out to in the world, wherever we're going. We have to get permits and we have to hire policemen to shut down roads and all the rest of this stuff. So uh, that was a real challenge with uh, with this uh, episode was to try and have the sense that the pants are running, but still stay within our limitations of having, uh, usually we like to have about half of the episode take place on our sets and and at most half of the episode take place out, out in the world. And this was a real challenge to do that. Uh, but, you know, luckily... I think it, we came up with some, a lot, obviously with David Gallagher, uh, the writer as well, came up with some good ideas to have the same fun of movement, but still keep it uh, on the lot and on the sets. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Mm. Behold. What? What? I can't see. Crease. I thought he was just a bedtime story. What? What bedtime story? Designed to frighten children. Why would you want to frighten children at bedtime? This story, I fear, may be based in fact. 
it. You mean to say that Ludacriso is real? That's not a thought, that's not a thought! Oh. Where's Ludacriso? A maniacal court jester who lures children to his castle and makes them into pudding. That is the what? Oh, has it been six minutes? <laughs> Let's not overdo it. Uh, the fish likes a nice swing and a hum. That's a dead fish. But too much is, well, it's just a little too much. Mm. You uh, both mentioned you end up in lotions and potions for some time where uh, Hexla is having a woman swing a fish for some beauty purpose. Do you, do you guys have like a list of weird stuff that Hexala can we do. have uh, going on? At one? We we created that list actually. Uh, that that uh, we needed just to have a sense of what these different spells could look like that don't always have to involve visual effects. Um, so many of the of Hexla's spells involve that poof of magical smoke, and it starts to become costly. So we did come up with a, a list of potential magic looking treatments that Hexala could could be doing that we could sort of discover Hexala doing that don't require any visual effects but are still bizarre. We look at it and we understand something funky is happening here, something not every day. And swinging that fish just um it was it was wonderful. That was a real dead fish. They really swung that dead fish and hummed I'm, to it. <laughs> I was about to mention how well the prop department did because the fish looks so real. Oh, it's real. Oh, there you go. Good job, we prop department. We didn't kill the fish, though. The fish was dead when we bought it. Oh, it was right. It was in the, uh, the the supermarket, ready to be yes. carved up and eaten. Thanks the little dot on its ID that said it could be donated to production. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> you, you mentioned how, how real it looked. Uh, I can attest to the fact that it also smelled very real. It, oh. it was, uh, yeah, it was it was a real fish. <laughs> so, so not only does that scene have one or two dead fish swinging around, um, but you also have Sloane, I think, running the entire time you're in there, um, with the exception of, I think, Caitlin, it switches to Caitlin for a little bit in there and then Sloane. Um, did he have to run for just every take? Because he's running around the room. He's never really off camera. Uh, yeah, he did. Uh, absolutely. Take after take after take of him just running and running and running uh, and constantly moving and having to remember exactly where he was on which line so you can cut it together so it matches. Uh, yeah, I, I remember that actually being quite uh, complicated and a couple of times Sloan getting confused and being in the wrong place at the wrong time and go, sorry, sorry. And then we take it back and pick it up again from there. And and we had to match our timing to it. And there were times it's like, okay, I have to wait to say this line until he gets over to this side of the room. And so you're kind of stretching your line out because it's later in the day and it's taking longer for him to get there. And now he's where he's supposed to be. And I'll say my line. <laughs> Remember when we had that kind of energy? Love the pants! Thank you! So the next thing that happens is the most important part of the episode. The joggers are back, and their marriage seems to have taken a bit of a turn. Female joggers seem super bored. But look at the end, she's really considering what her life has come to. Male jogger is loving it. He's delighted. 
Uh, my question is, will there be a 30-something style spinoff covering the ups and downs of marriage in suburbia starring the joggers? I don't think we, so. We have already... <laughs> no, no. We've written the pilot and we've pitched it. <laughs> what I, I think what we're realizing is that the cameo days, which we've only actually successfully completed two, are such... <laughs> stressful days we've had others that were that were scripted and planned and on the day one of us uh decided i can't handle this <laughs> because we actually do have a lot of work to do uh on on the day and then going through hair and make and makeup and wardrobe uh is an added level of stress that we don't that we don't usually use and 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 speaking of that i wish we <laughs> we're so perfectly quaffed <laughs> We look like we both just stepped out of the salon. I should have messed up my hair or something before we well, went out there. Yeah, Brian and I, we are we are writers. <laughs> we do enjoy being jogger number one and jogger number two. But honestly, when it's all done, we don't even allow ourselves to look at the at the takes of ourselves. We let the editors pick the takes on that because we're incapable of of being uh of being impartial as we look at jogger number one and jogger number two and and if jogger number one appears to be bored it's just because she is trying so hard not to overact that well, she's playing it as as low key and as flat as she possibly can so as not to be accused of chewing up the scenery well, and that, that uh, it, both of our two cameos has given me such a new respect for what Joel and, and actors are able to do because it's a very short scene and I think I have one line uh, and I got so many, and this was, we were running, of course, uh, and then we were following a steady cam and they would give us so many notes like, no, not that far back, not that close and point with your left hand, not your right hand and don't look over here, look over there. And I was like, oh my gosh, I can't, I don't understand how you guys address so many notes like that and and i feel bad that i'm usually the one sending the notes in yeah so it's I'm much sorry. easier to give the notes <laughs> <laughs> well I, I, and to be fair to be fair and i think joel would agree the hardest scenes for me are the one-line scenes mm. knowing you're going into a scene with just one line and trying to sell an entire story which is never a good idea with just one line is so hard i find that to be the toughest. So you guys set a bit of a challenge for yourself. You're very yes, gracious. Thank you. <laughs> I absolutely agree with you about the whole like one, two, three line part is the hardest because uh, you know you, you're showing up. You want it to be good and and you want to make an impression. And you know, let's be honest, as actors, you're hoping that they'll see something and say, "Let's add more lines." <laughs> so you have all this say. So you're putting all this, you know, and, and the the line is, uh, 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 "Thank you, I'll be right back." It's like, how do I make that into something, you know, that's emotional and make everyone feel, you know? And it's like, "Thank you, sir. I shall be right back." <laughs> and they're like, "Okay, can you just say it?" Uh, like a person, but it's so hard if you're not used to that, having the camera on you. A bit of preamble to the question here, but I think it's worthwhile and you can let me know after. I love the horror film aspect of the wardrobe. When we see it, you really expect Pennywise to be waiting in there. And there's one previous episode that has a horror film feel like this, and that's Peanut. And these two episodes, both third in their respective seasons, bring into relief the same major Dwight theme. Dwight assumes the best intentions, whereas Greta and Baldrick assume the worst. In Peanut, Dwight thinks the puppy is harmless, and here in Fancy Pants, Greta and Baldrick think the pants are bringing Dwight to an evil jester named Ludacriso, who will turn him into a tasty pudding. 
In Peanut, Dwight was wrong. The dog was a varger. Here, Greta and Baldrick are wrong. The pants just want to get back to their mate. When sculpting the overall trajectory of the show, how do you balance Greta's versus Dwight's life experiences, the assumptions they make based on those experiences, and who turns out to be right? That's a great question. So we do try to strike a balance. Um, Brian and I, um, I, I, I think, are are fairly balanced ourselves in our worldview. We don't take a pessimistic view of, of others, but we're also uh, aware that there are real dangers in the world. So we, we are not trying to, um, to send a message that is either overly negative uh, about, about people um, or that is overly unrealistic about people. We're trying to land right in the middle. So Dwight and Greta give us the chance to, to see that wrestling match uh, played out. And we, we need to let each of them be right, uh, have their turn being right, and each of them have their turn being wrong, so that we can show that, uh, that, there are, that, that there's value in withholding judgment and presuming goodwill and assuming that people are inherently good. But there's value in that. But then there's also value in being aware of the dangers that are that are alive and lurking in your environment and send that message as well. Both messages are really valuable for kids and families. So we let we let Dwight win sometimes and we let Greta win sometimes. That's a great answer. Yeah. And because there is balance through the whole show. And at its core, this this show is often teaching us just how to be people, just mm. how to be a person. And uh, I think that's why. So I think that's why it speaks to people of so many ages, because you just you connect to that on a very basic level. Um, Joel, a little follow up. Do you think Baldrick will ever stop expecting the worst or is it too ingrained in his lifetime of woes? Oh, it's way too ingrained in his lifetime of woes, in my opinion. I, I think he is always going to be suspicious. Uh, you know, he yeah, it, it, he's had a lifetime, if not a few lifetimes of you know, the worst almost always happens. So I think he's always expecting, okay, what's bad? What's, you know, suspicious? Okay, okay. it's like with Peanut. It's like, okay, you're too cute. Why are you cute? Ah, oh, you're a burger. Uh, You know, it's, it's, oh, it's, it's always a trick. It's always, you know, they're surrounded, you know, he's protecting Greta and they're surrounded by people who want to steal uh, her, her kingdom, you know? And so he has to have that view. I think at any, at any point that he's ever dealing with a princess, he has to have that view. All right. One last character aspect I want to discuss in this episode. Dwight and Nana seem to have the same optimistic outlook on life. Um, Brian and Leanne, do you think Dwight learned his optimism from Nana? Or do you think that's something Dwight and Nana found together as a way to cope with hmm. the loss of their parents and child, respectively? Wow. That is, that is a really great question. There's so much of Nana in Dwight. And when you and they've and the actors Bonita and Sloan have done such a great job syncing that up. Uh, but I, I I think definitely Dwight gets his sense of optimism uh, and his worldview in general from from Nana. I, I'm sure you're right uh, that as they've had to deal with you know serious tragedy in in their lives, they've helped helped each other and increased that optimism. But I, I definitely feel like that's one of the traits that that Dwight has inherited from Nana. Yeah, it's really lovely. It's so fun to see them as two peas in a pod. All right, so 
that's it for the episode. But Joel, um, we've been doing something a little different to wrap up in this time of quarantine. So I'd love to ask, is there something new you've tried or discovered during your time at home? Uh, something new uh, I've tried. Well, um, you know, I rent out a couple of rooms in my house. And so uh, the, the guys that are here, it's being quarantined. We've been sitting around. And so we kind of instituted, uh, you know, eight o'clock pretty much every night we're sitting down and watching a movie. And actually a few days ago, we started uh, binge watching Deadwood uh, from HBO. And so thoroughly enjoying that. Um, Other than that, I've been working on doing some writing. Um, I have a project that I uh, worked on years ago with my friend uh, Kelly Holden Bashar, and it's a uh, Lord of the Rings uh, parody musical. uh, The first book, uh, Fellowship of the Ring. And so we did it years ago, and we're working on a new version of it, which has a smaller, more minimalistic cast. And uh, before this, you know, all happened, we had, we, we had some real potential. It looked like we might be taking it to Edinburgh Fringe Festival, but uh, thank you, Corona. We're not. Oh. <laughs> Maybe next year, hopefully. Uh, but that would have been a dream uh, come true for sure. So I've been working on that. So doing some writing, doing some binge watching. That's mostly, I've been mostly excited working on the new uh, version of this show that I did. Gosh, we first wrote it 15 years ago. One other quick thing. I do have to say this episode uh, has my favorite Baldrick line of all time thus far, uh, which is, your sadistic master shall make no pudding today. <laughs> that wraps it up for season three, episode three of Dwight and Shining Armor, The Sunken Kingdom, the behind the scenes podcast about everything Dwight. Thank you, Brian. Thank you, Leanne. And thank you, Joel. Um, You can follow Brian on Instagram at Brian underscore J underscore Adams. You can follow Leanne at Leanne H. Adams. You can follow Joel at McCrary Joel. You can follow the show at Dwight and Shining Armor. And you can follow me at The Josh Breslow. Tune in again next week for season three, episode four, Mirabelle. Till then, I'm Josh Breslow. Thanks for listening. If you're quarantined on your own, reach out to some friends and discover something new about them. If you're lucky enough to be with loved ones, try something new together. An adventure at home, it might change your life. Dwight and Shining Armor, The Sunken Kingdom is written, edited, and hosted by Josh Breslow. Executive producers Leanne H. Adams and Brian J. Adams. Our studio engineer is Mike Schmidt. The theme song is composed by Christian Davis. And this podcast is recorded at the Comedy Store in West Hollywood.